thanks so much to Babita for uh, joining us and for coming back to Cardiff after so many years. And um, Babita, I wanted to start by asking you, as someone who's covered so many extraordinary news events over the course of your very distinguished career, what has been different about covering the coronavirus pandemic? Well, hello everyone, and uh, Claire, thank you, and hello, Karin. It's um, it's a privilege to be here and to be back at Cardiff Uni virtually. Um, I, gosh, what a year it's been. Uh, the challenges have just been huge this year, and you know, just just yesterday, I was trying to take stock of what we have done and what we are doing, and it's just really quite something to get your head around. I think the the most important thing to say from the get go is. The pandemic meant that we as journalists in a breaking news cycle when you work for 24 hour news had to stop. And that's not something that we're used to doing. We're on this machine 24 hours a day, but the pandemic meant that we had to stop, pause, and really work out how we were gonna keep the news machine running. And I think the biggest challenge was operational, how we were going to continue working in a newsroom as key workers when about 70% of our workforce were working from home. Who was gonna be coming in the building? Which buildings were gonna remain open? How many bureaus across the world were needed to be functioning? What the pandemic situation was like in various different countries around the world? And editorially, what the news agenda was asking of us at the time, um, you know, I've got a list here of all the news stories that were happening in this year outside of the pandemic. And it really has been quite an extraordinary news cycle. Yet, of course, coronavirus meant that out of nowhere came this news story that was really difficult to follow because it was incredibly rapid and it was infecting everybody. So the demand was there for us to tell the story. But how do we do that? with our journalists in all sorts of different places and obviously thinking about health and safety, which the BBC understandably had to be incredibly hot on. Um, so that just gives you a kind of overview really of, of the challenges. But you know, from my point of view, personally speaking, I came back to the BBC having taken a year off for maternity in April, in the peak of the first wave. So it was very difficult to kind of adjust anyway as a new mum coming back into uh, the work environment. But on top of that, I came into a socially distanced newsroom, which was so surreal, where I barely saw more than about five people from when we would normally have 50 people. So, you know, it was also the psychological aspect of that, uh, which I think you can't underestimate when you do the job that we do. So obviously, so just, just to pick up on, on some of what you just said, I mean, this has been a year that's obviously been characterized by the dominance of the pandemic itself, both as a story and also in terms of shaping the work that journalists do. But there have also been some other extraordinary news stories um, breaking and happening, unfolding all around us during this past year. Um, so what were some of the stories that stuck in your mind in terms of the of the experience of reporting on them over this past year? Well, I'll give you an example of, of really what I do on a daily basis, which is as a news anchor for BBC World News, 
I am reporting on the news of the day and also a breaking news um, situation. So it, we're live presentation, nothing is pre-recorded. And I'm, I'm just gonna just give you a whistle stop tour really of some of the major news events. And I've kind of been jotting them down on my piece of paper very haphazardly, but this is just a few that I've remembered that have really been key to the conversation that we've been having um, with our viewers, but also um, ones that have been massive news stories outside of coronavirus. So George Floyd death happened this year. For those of you that might remember, that was in March time. We had the Black Lives Matter protests, which took up months and months um, of the news uh, agenda, rightly so. Um, and again, I'll, I'll say that what I'm about to mention all happened when I was on air. So I was having to react to lots of different situations as we do as news anchors. Uh, the Lebanon explosion, a huge story, which was you know, really challenging in terms of my colleagues that were deployed to cover that story where the infection rate in Beirut in particular was rising. And then on top of that, you have this disastrous explosion. Uh, we have the Rohingya crisis, which is an ongoing story, which really has hit its peak regarding the inhumane treatment of this community of people in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, the refugee camp there. We had Brexit, Brexit and Brexit, of course, the ongoing story, and we're still covering it, but that was really interesting to be talking about a situation affecting the UK where we're also talking about the domestic issue around coronavirus. We also had the Cummings departure, the Dominic Cummings story. I was on air when that was breaking, and you know I was also reporting on the social distancing restrictions that the government were asking us all to do. And yet also then talking about one of the most senior advisors for Downing Street breaking the rules. Uh, that was quite an extraordinary breaking news story. There were terror attacks in France that we covered, unfortunately a number of those as well. And there was the Izmir earthquake, which affected um, hundreds and hundreds of people there. And of course, the US election. The US election covering that in a pandemic. Um, I was, um, it was, there was a conversation last year about me coming back from maternity and potentially going over to the US to cover the story, like I did uh, when Trump came to power and I covered that. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, it meant that we really had to scale down the amount of deployments for BBC News, but I was still able to cover the lead up and indeed election night from the BBC News studios in London. But again, that just gives you a very, very quick look at these huge stories that had so much resonance for people. And, you know, that's not to mention a number of key people that have passed away as well, you know, celebrities and all sorts, where I think for us, that is a, a busy news cycle anyway. But then when you think about how we cover it with resources that have been pulled back because we have a limited number of people in the newsroom, in the news gathering operation around the world as well, it, it really makes you appreciate what we do and, and how we're able to really kind of hone our coverage in a pandemic and hats off to everybody that I work with because none of those stories I don't think were compromised in how we covered them. Um, yes, they were challenging, but we were still able to go there and, and rightly, for example, cover the Black Lives Matter in a number of states that that was taking place through different facilities and, and partnering up with network broadcasters when perhaps we didn't have a reporter and a cameraman in situ. So there are ways of doing things, but it just meant that we really had to think very carefully about how we covered these big, big stories. So, I mean, you mentioned there some of the kind of impact of the pandemic on the work of journalists on the ground. So what, what are some of the specific 
ways in which the work of journalists on the ground reporting stories have changed as a result of the pandemic. And obviously one of the things you mentioned there was um, a kind of uh, reduction in the resources on the ground. What, what are some of the other things that's changed about what it's like to be a journalist being out there covering a protest, covering an explosion or some other kind of uh, major breaking news story? Well, I can only really speak from experience. And, you know, this year I wasn't out reporting on the ground, but, you know, I have experience of covering major protests. For example, I was in Hong Kong when the Umbrella protests were taking place, where there are thousands upon thousands of people around you. And when you're in that situation as a journalist, you are thinking about safety, the safety of yourself, the safety of the crew, the safety of the people around you. You're, you're thinking about mitigating circumstances where you're, you're, aware of not heightening a situation because you're filming in a protest and often that attracts people to you. So that's just to give you a flavor of what it's like without a pandemic. And then when you think about coronavirus and what that does, you know, for, for colleagues of mine that were covering the Black Lives Matter protests or the Izmir earthquake, for example, or the Lebanon explosion, there was a, another additional layer that you have to think about, which is health and safety, which is your safety, which is, you know, wearing the masks, ensuring that you are obeying the social distancing rules as well, not only for yourself, but to keep your contributors safe. And I think before you can even talk about what is going on editorially or the news story at hand, you've got to get that in place, which means that that has to be in the back of your mind at all times. And I suppose the only way to relay that for people that aren't journalists is to say that we're really kind of doing that, aren't we, at the moment? It's almost become second nature to pick up a mask when you leave the house or to kind of move away from somebody if they're approaching you a bit too closely. And I think for journalists now, we've it's almost ingrained in us that that's what we have to do. Um, and that does also have an impact on, you know, the type of interview that you're going to get as well so before you even press record and you start shooting or you even do a live interview the conversation you have with your contributor is really key because even though you're a distance away from them it's really important that we're able to treat each other with respect and be human and ask them how they are and you know really find out more about them perhaps even more so than we would have done not in this situation. And, you know, I think, like I said, my colleagues that have been doing this on the ground have done an incredible job. Um, and I, you know, I got to film a documentary series for BBC News this year. And I wasn't in a protest, but I was in a factory floor, for example, and interviewing people. And, and I got a taste of what they're going through on a daily basis because I was then having to think about where I'm standing and where my cameraman is, and is he safe, and are we all safe? Um, yeah, challenging to say the least, but I'm really proud to say that, you know, we've risen to the challenge, and I think that we've done some incredible work. So, so in terms of, so you already talked a little bit about your own experience of coming into this sort of transformed environment as a news anchor. Uh, what, what's it been like to, to work in a socially distanced newsroom? What's that experience been like for you, and how is it different from, what's what it was like before the pandemic hit we're a, a strange bunch a bit weird i'd say in the newsroom and by that i mean corin that um you know when you come into a newsroom we you know we're the biggest headquarters in the world for the bbc in london and broadcasting house and the newsroom is a manic space 
uh, you've got radio, you've got TV, you've got online, you've got international news, you've got national news, you've also got radio studios and TV studios, you've got three different galleries, you've got directors, producers, all of us milling around and presenters. And we never really think about people's space. It's not that we don't respect people's space, but we don't have the opportunity or the time to. So for example, in a normal planning meeting or an editorial pe meeting, people are talking, we're coming up with ideas, time is of the essence, we're thinking about what we need to get done almost yesterday, and it's quick, and it's fast paced, and it's go, 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 go. What this did was made us, and I think I said it at the start, was pause and actually think, okay, so here I am in the newsroom, but news gathering aren't sit there anymore, aren't sitting there anymore. The people that we normally go up to and say, can you book us a line to Moscow? Uh, where are they now sat? Okay, we now need to phone somebody who's working from home. Um, and normally we just run up to them and things are done like that. So I think it was about really having to lean and support on people in a very different way and take stock that you know, things might not happen as instantly as we might expect them to in a breaking news environment. We've got to probably be a bit more measured with our expectation that we might not be able to get a line booked to Moscow within half an hour. It might take an hour or it might take 10 minutes instead of five minutes. So I think you know, being in a socially distanced newsroom was, was strange because normally you get this buzzy kind of atmosphere and to see it quieter really for me brought home the enormity of what I was going through as an individual in this pandemic, but also the story itself and really how serious it was when at the beginning, when coronavirus, you know, came about, people were still kind of dismissing it, were still, you know, not taking the social distancing rules that seriously. But for me, the enormity of, of it sank in when I knew that, okay, if the newsroom is quieter, there aren't that many people about, this is pretty serious. So, so we, we've talked a little bit now about the sort of logistical challenges and the changes to your work and the work of your colleagues in, in the BBC newsrooms. Um, one of the things that, that I'm also interested in is questions around the ethical challenges of covering a pandemic. So I, I've been doing some work with the Welsh NHS Confederation who approached me because they were really concerned about the fact that they, in addition to providing health services, also had to communicate with the media about what was going on with the pandemic. And this information from the NHS is obviously of vital importance to the public. And it's therefore crucial that the Welsh NHS were in a position to actually communicate successfully with the media. But at the same time, they were concerned about what would happen when uh, journalists would sort of descend upon hospitals and other healthcare settings in a situation where NHS staff were really mainly preoccupied with providing um, care to critically ill um, and seriously ill patients. So, one of the things that came out of these conversations were a series of guidelines um, to um, help journalists who are sort of navigating this landscape, in many cases for the very first time, of actually trying to report on a breaking and very, very difficult news story. Um, and so 
that brought up a whole range of different ethical challenges about, about how to navigate this environment. And you already touched a little bit on, on issues of health and safety in terms of reporting on the ground. But what, what do you see as some of the main kind of ethical challenges that come up in, in this situation? I think there's a real crossover with what you're saying in terms of, um, you know, the data that needs to be gathered or the research that's been conducted by a number of universities and academic institutions and think tanks that, you know, for us as journalists, it was really vital that we were able to get close to the story. And by getting close to a story, that means actually getting close to the cases of COVID-19. And that means people and their families. There were some ex you know, exemplary reports by our medical uh, correspondent, Fergus Walsh for the BBC. And that was for the 10 o'clock news and also for BBC World News and BBC News as well domestically. And, and what he did and his team did, and I, I, and I know they won't mind me speaking on their behalf, was they gained incredible access to intensive care units in a number of hospitals in London and indeed in other parts of the country later on. This is when we're looking at the first wave of the pandemic. And what that reporting did was really shine a light on the seriousness and the complex issues surrounding this virus and really bringing home to people what having coronavirus is actually all about. And the reason why I think that was so important, and I'll lay this, the safety rules out in a minute, but the reason that was so important is for, for many people sat at home or working from home or you know, understanding or trying to navigate this, this surreal landscape, it was the first chance that they got when they switched on the television or looked at their mobile phone and watched a report and thought, Okay, so that's what it's like for somebody with the virus in intensive care, or that's what the nurses are going through, that's what the doctors are going through, that's what we are dealing with here as a nation, as a country, as a global citizen when we're seeing this pandemic spread around the world. So it was, you know, the public service duty there was, was so important for us to get that kind of access. But of course, when you get that kind of access, you really have to think about weighing up the ethical issues here and the only way that we can really tell a story is consent and I know that Karen you've done this with the team that you've been working on to gather the research as well that we cannot as journalists no matter who we think we are or who we're working for BBC or not or any other news organization in the world you cannot tell a story like this without getting consent from the people that you're filming so for example uh, you know we were fortunate enough to gain access to a number of incredible doctors and nurses um, in hospitals across the country. We were also allowed to film, you know, people that were critically ill, only because their families had agreed with us beforehand that you can go in. And, you know, there was a quite a bit of criticism for journalists, again, all sorts of from all kinds of news organisations where people were looking and going, well, hold on, the family aren't allowed in there. There is, they can't get close to their loved ones, even hold their hands, but yet the journalists are PPE'd up and able to get, get there. And, you know, there has never been a report that has been done this year, to my knowledge, where there hasn't been consent given from the families that say you can go in there. So I think that's really important to point out. But also, you know, from a health and safety point of view from the BBC, they have to protect their staff as well. So there has to be a whole structure 
of questions and protocol to adhere to before you even go about trying to organize a filming of that nature, a sensitive filming. You know, Clive Myrie, a, a colleague and a correspondent did some incredible filming just recently, a few months ago, of a, a number of BAME um, people that had been affected with COVID-19 in ICU units. Again, you know, consent was uppermost in the minds that, that that is what you need to follow. And if you are not ticking all the boxes of these questions, you're not gonna be able to go in. Um, and on a really practical level, it's also about insurance and ensuring your employees are following the BBC rule book when it comes to this. And bearing in mind that that BBC rule book is being constantly looked at and changed and adapted every single week as we've been trying to navigate this strange environment, this pandemic. You know, even last week, I, I got another email from um, our operating officer at the BBC talking about, again, a change in social distancing, again, reducing the numbers as the infection rate, particularly in London is rising. So it's a situation that has to be continuously um, assessed all the time. But, you know, the ethical issues are incredibly important. And, I, and I'm glad they are. And I'm glad that they are robust because you wouldn't be able to, you know, compromise on something like that, which is incredibly important. Now, and, and you um, you mentioned uh, some of the amazing stories that uh, you've been able to cover and in a sense, sort of really shining a light on the consequences of the pandemic for real people um, and sort of in a sense, dramatizing what is this story actually about? And I think that a lot of observers see this pandemic as a real vindication of, of the importance of traditional journalism, um, high quality independent uh, journalism. And um, some of the um, examples you mentioned are obviously extremely compelling, particularly in terms of giving you access to places that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get into, like um, um, ICU departments and hospitals and so on. But I was wondering if you could think of any examples of, of particularly important or poignant stories around the pandemic that, that sort of caught your eye or that you've been involved with um, over, over this period. Yeah, well, I can, um, I'll tell you a personal story firstly, which is um, how my understanding of grief and bereavement came to a head when my best friend's mother passed away with COVID-19 in uh, the end of March, excuse me, the beginning of April, she passed away. This is a friend that um, I studied at Cardiff with, we've become lifelong friends since. And, you know, uh, her mum was, I knew her mum very well. And that situation for me was incredibly upsetting also for my friend as well. Um, but, the, but the fact that we were reporting on a rise and a link between people from ethnic minority backgrounds uh, falling ill to this disease, but also dying from it. Um, my friend's mum was an Indian woman living in Birmingham. And that was also highlighted as one of the geographical areas, which were so-called hotspots of COVID-19. So that really struck a chord with me. But I think after that, um, listening to my friend and the difficulty that she went through the grooving process on her own and also seeing how she had to go about organizing her mum's funeral without any support 
uh, family members, you know, a limited number being able to help her. And also remembering that this was at the height of the pandemic, you know, April time when we were still trying to work out what was going on. There was still a run of toilet rolls in the shops. And, and, and for her, she was still trying to very much understand what this was all about. And then for me, attending a funeral online, a virtual funeral where I couldn't even be there for my friend was the most extraordinary experience and then as a journalist to then go into the newsroom and then present a news story about VAME deaths in the Midlands um, and then and see you know I would report on the daily figures and the daily tally and you know 500 people have died in the last 24 hours of a Covid test and then that takes a tally up to 20,000 or something and knowing that my friend's mum was part of that tally uh, and for me, I think I then switched slightly my understanding of what this news story was all about because it was very close to me. And I don't often say this because, you know, we as journalists, it's very important for us to be impartial and, and to take a step back. But I couldn't really in that situation because it was all happening at the same time. And I, I wanted to share this with you today because... I think for me, I then started to realize that behind every number that I'm reading out is a face and is a person. And again, editorially, a decision was made um, to use stills of the number of people that had died as much as we could. Um, and I think that that really was a responsible way to tackle the fact that the death rate was going up um, and to actually give faces and names to the figures because otherwise it became a real cold clinical assessment of what was going on in this country and my friend's mum and the passing of her really made me think about that and anybody that I interviewed um, that had recovered from um, COVID-19 I was sure to kind of really ask them the effect on the whole family you know and also the mental health aspect of this because I don't think we've really understood how big an impact it will have on, on us as families, as individuals, on whatever setup we have, working from home, whatever, childcare, no childcare. Um, I think the mental health aspect of it is something that I think, I hope that we will continue to report on and have some in-depth analysis on moving into 2021 and 2022. Because for me, that is a story that I think will be coming up soon. I mean, it's a it's a really powerful um, story that that you shared shared with us there, and and to me, it's it's also really important because it highlights what has for such a long time been a kind of elephant in the room in terms of talking about journalism, which is the fact that journalists like like you and and your colleagues are constantly reporting on these um, really dramatic and often traumatic news events. And there's always been this assumption that because you're impartial, because you're objective, that you're able to um, be um, kind of dispassionate about it and it doesn't affect you as an individual. And if anything, it's only over the last few years that we've seen any kind of attention being paid to the kind of emotional impact of covering these major and often traumatic news event. So I'm wondering whether, do you, do you think, is, is this something that you're starting to discuss more broadly in the newsroom around the mental health implications and the personal impact of covering the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been a journalist now. I mean, I've presented for 10 years and, and a producer before that. So I've been, you know, in the industry for over 20 years. And I have to admit that the willingness and the support 
to actually talk about the impact of um, being a journalist or covering news stories on your mental health has been very slow. And it's taken a while for people to understand how important that is. And I, and I don't think it's just in journalism. I think generally around us all as a community, you know, wherever we live, I think now there is a nod to understanding a bit more about mental health and really appreciation. We have to look at the services and the resources that are around us where actually you can now talk to your GP about mental health issues. And I think that, you know, yes, we have been slow in our industry, but we are getting there. And I think in the last five years in particular, I've seen an initiative grow about people understanding that actually this is pretty key to what journalists do, particularly on if you're reporting on the ground, and particularly if you are in what we call the intake part of the newsroom, which is the people that sit there in front of their desks, filtering out the news feeds that are coming to them of bombings, of beheadings. I know it sounds awful, but it's true. There is somebody that has to watch this material before they can say, you can run that or you can't, or you know, terror attacks or, or deaths or you know, ICU units. Uh, and those people have often been signed off from work. Um, and those people were often the forgotten ones uh, within the newsroom. And you know, I'm pleased to say that that is now changing where nobody's gonna sit there watching hours and hours of footage of something because you just, you, you shouldn't put yourself under that incredible duress. Uh, there is now a support system, there's a rotation system there is a space to go to after you've seen something and there is an open dialogue where you can say, well, I'm not feeling great about what I've just seen. And I think just an awareness of asking, you know, your peers, are you okay? And is everything okay? And not to be embarrassed by something like that. You know, I have been on what we call hostile environment training at the BBC and that is when we are going through exercises a bit like you know the army do or soldiers do um, we're going through exercises to cope with particular situations that we might find ourselves in for example protests so there's a mock-up scenario whatever and I'm really pleased to say that now they have included in this course um, the impact of mental health and actually what that's all about and what post-traumatic stress disorder looks like because journalists are known to suffer from PTSD, particularly if they're uh, you know, covering uh, war zones, they're going out to war zones or being deployed in situations like that. And I think with the pandemic, um, I, it's quite new, Karin, to actually say, you know, how much support has there been for all these people? I would like to think that there has been a lot of support for people that have been covering stories on the front line like they would any other story because that's now very much part of the work ethic that we've adopted in the last few years the impact of covering the pandemic to what it's like on your mental health i don't know the answer to that in the same way that we all don't know what the answer is because we've been living this extraordinary year but i'm hoping that you know with the support we can move forward and navigate that and people know where for example where we work that actually you can click on that link and actually you can make a phone call and there is somebody that you can talk to in occupational health that can support you but i think it's constantly about communicating and not being embarrassed to say you know what i can't do this right now this is outside of my remit um i need some support here so it's really interesting to hear you say that in a sense, we can see the pandemic as a kind of watershed moment in terms of calling attention to these issues around 
mental health uh, in journalism, which have really been around for some time um, and have always been coming up whenever journalists have been reporting on major crises um, and major traumatic news events. Um, so um, but another thing that I wanted to sort of um, talk to you about or turn to now is the question of another phenomenon which has really come up quite uh, significantly over the course of the pandemic. And that has to do with the idea of the infodemic. So the idea that um, we, what we've seen over the course uh, of this year is extensive sharing of misinformation and fake news and conspiracy theories via social media. And in some quarters, this is seen as kind of the responsibility of mainstream media to deal with. So there's this idea that, you know, we've got all this bad information out there. We've got crazy conspiracy theories about 5G and Bill Gates and, and George Soros and so on. On the other hand, we've got these mainstream, well-established uh, news organizations that are also well-resourced like the BBC and that they have therefore a responsibility to counteract that misinformation. What, what do you think that, that an organization like the BBC can or should do to address this infodemic? And is it even an arena that the BBC is able to step into? Um, we don't have a choice. Is, is the blunt answer about it, Karen. We have to step in there. We have been stepping in there for a long time. Um, it's not about just having a nod to it. Uh, you know, the answer is check, check, double check, fact check absolutely everything because that's the world that we're living in now. And we never had a disinformation social media correspondent at the BBC before. We do now. Her name is Mariana Spring and she's extraordinary. Um, she took on the role, I think it was a year and a half, two years ago now, she has been inundated in terms of what she does. You know, she's been covering misinformation during the pandemic, misinformation during the US election, which has been a huge test for us. And I think since Donald Trump came to power, that's really been a turning point in, you know, us fact checking absolutely everything that is said. And you have to remember, we work in, in a live news environment. So if we're covering a press conference from Washington, for example, and he's saying something, and then we come off that press conference 10 minutes later, it's my job as a news anchor to say, well, actually, that's not true. What he just said there is not true. So it's, it's constantly being on your game, know, really knowing your story to actually say to the viewers, well, actually that pipeline costs X amount of millions of dollars, not that amount that that business tycoon just said, or, you know, uh, the US election campaign isn't fraudulent. There's been no evidence for fraudulent behavior in it. And, you know, you've seen that with other um, networks doing it, for example, on Twitter, on Facebook, they have the warnings that come up. Our warning system is checking and double checking and triple checking. And I think in an age of social media, it's vital that we do that. And I think it's really important as well because there's been a shift in the last four or five years where there was a real push towards what we call social media journalism or citizen journalists, if you like, where they have phones now and they can go out and be reporters in their own right and film things, which is fantastic for us because it meant that we had access to things that we never necessarily had on the spot there and then as something is happening. For example, Grenfell fire. Already there were people taking videos of the fire before we got a crew there. It's extraordinary access. 
but also in the same breath, we have to use that footage responsibly. And it's up to us as a news organization to check it, check the source, check where it's come from, check the timing of it, check if there's any doctoring of the material because that now happens as well. And that's very much part of what we do. And I don't think a day goes by where we're not having to think that way about disinformation, misinformation. Um, and I think this virus in particular, the pandemic has um, forced us to think about it even more so than we did beforehand. Because like you said, there's been lots of different theories, conspiracy theories going on that gain a lot of traction on social media very quickly. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's one that we should be broadcasting or talking about because also we have to bear in mind that you know we have a privileged position by being able to disseminate information to a wider public so therefore we have a responsibility to make sure that what we're issuing out there is right and is newsworthy and not just chucking it out there so I just uh, wanted to ask you a final question because I can see Claire is coming online there to manage the Q&A um, and one of the things that's come across uh, quite strongly in what, what you've been telling us about this afternoon is how this has been such a dyna dynamic, swiftly changing, but also incredibly important story um, to be covering. And I was just wondering, um, first of all, how it changed your thinking about what it means to be a journalist. And then secondly, how the things uh, that you learned during your time at Cardiff equipped you to cover this, uh, this incredible and still ongoing um, major news event. Wow, okay, well, I'll, I'll do the first one, which is things that I uh, really changed my view on this year. And I think um, the pace really of life, I was going at a hundred miles per hour before this pandemic struck. I was filming documentaries, I was writing a book, I fell pregnant, I had a baby and it was all going um, and then I was doing live broadcasting as well. Um, I was also doing keeping in touch days, what we call kit days at the BBC when you're on maternity leave and I was going up to Salford to do BBC breakfast and it was all a lot and it was very busy, but I loved it and I enjoyed it. But I think because this situation forced me on a personal level to, to stop um, and to work from home in some situations as well, what has made me realize is that I can still be very productive without having to go at a hundred miles per hour, if that makes sense. I don't physically need to be burning out, uh, which I think I was probably doing in some in, in situations, which is what journalists often find themselves doing. And, and really, I don't need to prove that as much to anybody else or, or rather than just to myself. So I think it's just actually taking more, having more courage and conviction in, in myself to appreciate that I have the skills and the knowledge to do the job that I can do without having to be manic about it. I think that's probably one of the big takeaways. Um, in terms of what I learned at Cardiff, wow, you know, for me, the biggest thing about my time at Cardiff and particularly on the course that I studied was the people that I met. I met some extraordinary people. Um, some have become colleagues, all have become good friends of mine. But I think understanding the value of really that, that friendship base and that communication channel, because, you know, as journalists and, you know, we all have a WhatsApp group, me and my friends are from Cardiff Uni. Um, I think we've all done different things with our careers. Some are in print journalism, some are in digital, some are in sports, some are in media, some have left journalism completely. But I think what we all realize is actually the, um, not so much about 
working in a news environment, if you like, but what we need to take away about what we feel about ourselves, if that makes sense, that actually everything is okay. And as, as manic as crazy as your career might be, or your course might be, or the study might be, it's okay. Things will be okay. And to, and to just, um, again, have that self-belief. And I, and, I, and I got that from a particular tutor who used to teach me on uh, the undergrad course called Bob Atkins, who's no longer with us, sadly. But he once said to me, you know, you want to go and do your postgrad in journalism and you've just done your undergrad and then you're going to go and work. He goes, why don't you just take some time out, go traveling, travel the world, um, I think he was just basically telling me to grow up a bit, but what he was saying was just open your eyes a little bit more because it doesn't have to be study, 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 study work. It can be about meeting other people and opening, you know, expanding your horizons. And, and that was a, a huge fundamental message for me to take away from my time there. Thank you, Babisa. That's a lovely way to end as well with the, an injunction to open our eyes. Thank yes. you for the great questions as well, Karin, and uh, keep up the great work.